Praise be Jesus Christ. Peace be with you. Happy to be speaking to you again on In Your Embrace podcast after a week away. It has been a whirlwind couple of weeks for me, but what else is new? <laughs> it seems like every week is another whirlwind of activities, many, many things to be done, many good things. Every day is, uh, is full, and, uh, and so the weeks pass quickly. So last time I recorded this podcast, I was gearing up to go to Oregon for a solemn high nuptial mass. Uh, that was on October 1st. Saturday, October 1st. It went very well. Uh, That weekend, I flew up to Oregon on Friday, right after my last class in the afternoon, uh, along with uh, Brother Seminarian here. We went up, uh, went to the airport, flew straight to Medford, Oregon, down south, uh, close to Ashland, where I spent my summer this year uh, for my pastoral assignment. We got there, went to the rehearsal dinner, stayed over in a hotel, Got up early Saturday morning, had a four-hour rehearsal <laughs> preparing for this Mass. You know, the Solemn High Mass is so intricate. We had to rehearse all the different parts with the servers as well as the subdeacon and myself the deacon. My seminarian friend was the MC for the Mass, so he was in charge of making sure everyone knew their parts and was in the right places at the right times. Then when our rehearsal was done, it was time for the wedding. <laughs> so we had a... Uh, uh, well, so we had the wedding ceremony itself at 1 p.m. Uh, in the traditional Latin Mass, the sacrament of matrimony takes place separately from the Mass itself. So we had the, the, the marriage first, the wedding first, and it was very, very beautiful with many blessings and, you know, blessing of the rings and all, all the, the rituals surrounding that. Um, and then after that, we had the actual Mass. Now, one beautiful thing during the Solemn High Nuptial Mass is this custom. There's a special blessing for the bride and groom called the Nuptial Blessing. It takes place towards the middle of the Mass, actually right after the Our Father, the Pater Noster. And for this blessing, a couple of altar servers go and hold the humeral veil over the heads of the bride and groom as they are kneeling there and receiving the priest's blessing. Uh, this custom is very beautiful, and I did a little bit of research on it. Uh, and it turns out it's possibly the oldest custom related to Christian marriage that, that there is, that still survives. It goes back to the very earliest centuries of the church. And in fact, it is rooted in a Jewish practice that it seems perdures even to this day, although the Jews lost it for a while. I mean, it's, I'm a little uncertain when, when and why it was lost and how it was recovered. So you can actually read about it in the scriptures. In the Song of Songs, there's a, a verse that talks about uh, the bride and groom being covered over. And uh, the Jews to this day who are married in the Jewish you know, rites of matrimony are married under a canopy, under a tent. This, of course, evokes the tabernacle in the desert, the tent of meeting in which they carried the Ark of the Covenant. So the, the, the tent, the canopy, is an image of God who comes to dwell with mankind. Uh, who, he comes to dwell in the midst of his chosen people. It's also an image, a uh, scriptural image of God's protection, God who overshadows us, 
Um, there's many, many times we read in the Psalms about God overshadowing us, covering us, making for us uh, a refuge, a dwelling place, which is Himself. So it's very beautiful, this, this imagery of being covered over, being under the canopy, as it were, under the covering of God's protection. In the early centuries, uh, the church actually referred to marriage not as matrimony, matrimonium, but as velatio nuptialis, which is the nuptial veiling. And so even like the early canons of some of the, uh, the, the, the councils of the church refer to those who have been joined by the velatio nuptialis, who have been joined, as it were, under the veiling, the veil of God. So it's a very, very beautiful sign um, that it is God who joins this couple and He Himself makes a home for them and He is their protection and their refuge and their strength. Uh, many things about that day were very beautiful to me. And one encouraging thing was the, the families of the bride and groom both just gave such a beautiful testimony of Catholic faith. Um, in both cases, it's interesting, the, their children, the bride and the groom, kind of led the parents and the rest of the family into a deeper and more vibrant faith. And for both of these, well, both the young man and the young woman, and then now for both their families, um, the route to that has been through the traditional Latin Mass. And so it's, it's beautiful to see um, these two families now united through the marriage of their son and daughter uh, have just been lit on fire by their encounter with the beauty of our Catholic tradition, of our, of our patrimony, of our heritage. It's cool to see too, they had an exhibit set up at the rehearsal dinner of the wedding photos, uh, back, going back three generations, both of the bride's family and the groom's family. So you could see their parents were, they had very lovely wedding photos, uh, but they were clearly a, a you know, Novus Ordo Mass in the 1970s, 80s. Um, so you could just clearly tell, okay, they're from that era, that style is very evident. Then their parents, the grandparents of the young couple, and the great-grandparents have both had beautiful Catholic high mass wedding photos. You can see behind them the high altar, uh, all with its candles and the altar cross, all uh, uh, arrayed for a high mass. And so, uh, to see the, now the young generation who were married that Saturday, restoring, it, it really was just a beautiful image of restoration of the tradition which has been lost and now is returning. So, just wonderfully encouraging uh, all around that weekend. But a real whirlwind, because as soon as the Mass was over, basically, brother and I flew back here uh, and headed straight to the parish, stayed overnight, the parish, I mean my parish assignment, also his uh, parish. And so we stayed overnight there and then straight to Masses in the morning. I was preaching. We had animal blessings for the Feast of St. Francis. So it was a very full day. So you better believe I was exhausted when I got back here. <laughs> and uh, now we're in the midst of midterm season. It's hard to believe we're halfway through the semester already, but sure enough, we are. This is week eight. Week eight. So... Um, for me, my midterms are done. I had only two, and uh, they were both, the professor scheduled them a week or two early, uh, which we all deeply resented at the time, but now it's, it's nice because we have no stress really this week, academically anyway. And then we get a little midterm break, so uh, 
this Tuesday, October 11th, uh, we have class. And then from Wednesday through Sunday, we're off. There's no classes. A lot of the guys who, at least uh, those who live kind of close, are going home for the break. I'm going to stay here, but I hope to make good use of this time to get ahead on various things I need to do. Um, so a couple of things, just off the top of my head. So I have to write my homily for next Sunday, of course. Um, I have to uh, prepare a lesson plan for confirmation class next Sunday. I'm teaching every other week the confirmation students at my parish. So prepare that. Working on a paper on marriage and the, and the, the Christian states of life for one of my classes. I'm about halfway done, so I'm going to finish that this week. And I need to finish up work on our in-house directory, uh, which again fell to me this year to do. So uh, I'm going to finish it up. I've been training in another seminary to take it over when I'm gone. But uh, one last time I have to <laughs> prepare this directory. Uh, so that's getting close as well. So hopefully I can finish it up this week. And uh, a couple of other small things I have going on as well. One thing it would be nice to get done this week if I can is I have to do a video project for one class, my class on penance and anointing of the sick. Um, so part of our assignments for that class is to do a three to five minute video, um, basically a kind of a case study. So like a difficult question of moral theology. What's something that someone might bring up in confession? It's kind of a, a thorny question or a difficult thing to navigate. So you have to come up with, we come up with our own, so you have to come up with a case study and then f maybe do a little research and figure out how to respond to it as a confessor. And then you create the video responding to it, basically, and the professor will evaluate it. So it'd be nice to get that done this week too. Then, I can, then I'll really I'll really be in good shape for the rest of the semester. So that's my hope for this week. Get ahead on some projects. At the same time, um, I do want to have some real time for rest. So I'm going to certainly take my Wednesday uh, day off. Maybe go out hiking or go to the beach. Get a little time away. And my hope is maybe each day this week if I can get one thing done. Accomplished, you know, tied up, completed. Um, I'll be happy with this break. I'll be really happy. It'll be nice. You know, it's difficult with classes and the meetings and the engagements every day, constantly going from thing to thing. I don't have a ton of real windows of time to do deep work, and that's something that I'm wondering if I can, if I can resolve. Um, one of the just difficulties, perennial difficulties for me of seminaries, uh, the days just fill up with, I mean, our classes and all these other demands. And so it can be difficult to carve out time to also do like the deep work that we need to do. It's, I find myself working on things in little snatches, 15 minutes here, 30 minutes here. And for me, I, I, do, I work much better if I have a span of some hours that I can kind of go into deep focus. However, uh, others have it much worse and, and do far better. So <laughs> I'm thinking of one woman I know who recently completed her, I think, doctorate. Uh, I think it was a doctorate in sacred music. I'm not sure if I got those details right. but I, I, she's, She is a musician anyway. And I think it was in sacred music. Anyway, she did this dissertation 
She's a mother of like two or three young children and also a full-time professor. <laughs> and she did this dissertation, she said, in 15-minute snatches of time while her kids were napping. <laughs> she finished it in like a year or something. So that's encouraging. Uh, it can be done. I'm also trying to get my MA thesis completed. I met with my director on Saturday of this past weekend. We had a couple of hours at a coffee shop. Very nice meeting. We just went through the whole draft and... Uh, he was able to give me some a little bit clearer direction on what exactly he wants me to revise. So we literally were just going through the thing, putting sticky notes on pages, under you know making notes, highlighting things. Um, so that's nice. Now it, it doesn't feel so like daunting because I can just go back through page by page, look at those sticky notes, and make the revisions that he suggested, and then resubmit. So hopefully by the end of the semester I will have that done and turn that in as well. One thing I'm thinking about now as I'm preparing to teach confirmation this Sunday, um, this will be my first time teaching the confirmation class at Mato Dolorosa. So I'm considering how exactly to structure the class. Um, I'm only going to be with them four times this semester. So I want to make the most of the time that I have. One thing that I have in the forefront of my mind is uh, a quote I think about a lot from St. Paul VI. It says, modern man listens more easily to witnesses than he does to teachers. Witnesses, in other words, one who gives witness himself in his own life of what he's, he's teaching. And he meant that specifically in reference to the gospel um, and to the Christian faith. And so I do think it's important for the students to get to know me and have a little bit of a sense of who I am, not just coming in as this you know, random person <laughs> coming in to teach them, but that they, uh, for them, I guess, to kind of, just to kind of know me. Um, and I'd like to get to know them a bit as well. So uh, there is an assigned topic for the class. It's the, to the topic for the class is um, how do we know God is real? on divine revelation. So certainly I want to get to that, but I, the way that I'm kind of feeling led by the Holy Spirit, I think, as I'm discerning about this, is I need to establish a kind of a foundation of common ground with them first before I, before I get into that. Because it just came to me earlier as I was thinking through this. Like The topic is, how do we know God is real? Uh, it, that presupposes that we all believe God is real. I don't know if these kids believe that. I truly don't. I mean, I they should, ideally. They're in a confirmation class at a Catholic parish. But um, experience and anecdotes from others <laughs> have taught me you can't presume that. You can't presuppose that the students in this class actually do know or believe that God exists. And and I think there has to be... So, so in other words, I think... I have to give them a kind of a testimony or witness from my own life, establishing myself as a, a credible witness to Jesus Christ before getting into what the textbook has for this lesson, which, I mean, it's all good content. It was very intellectual. It's uh, St. Thomas Aquinas and the five proofs for the existence of God and uh, looking at, you know, faith and reason which are in harmony, not in conflict, 
It talks about Gregor Mendel, the Catholic biologist who discovered, uh, what did he discover? DNA? <laughs> I, I better go back and reread re these readings. <laughs> anyway, but yeah, I just, I just paged through it. Hey, I guess he discovered genetics, huh? like inherit, inherited traits or something. I vaguely remember that from my middle school biology classes. Anyway, Gregor Mendel is a Catholic priest, so it talks about that. So, I mean, those are definitely important points to address because I know many, many, many young people um, have sort of inherited by osmosis this idea that faith and reason are in conflict, especially like faith and science. Science and religion are at war with each other. And uh, they see the credibility of science, like they, they believe that. They don't necessarily see the credibility of religion on a rational basis. So it, that, that's totally important and I, I, we need to get to that. I just am feeling like there needs to be uh, some groundwork laid first. And, and ultimately I think what needs to be there is a relationship with me who's coming in to teach them. Um, so anyway, if you would, as you're listening to this, uh, say a prayer for me to discern that well and be able to respond to what the Lord is asking here. Um, yeah, and uh, I, I pray that these four classes I have this semester with these teenagers uh, are gonna bear good fruit. The most that I can do is hope to plant good seed, but before planting the seed, there needs to be some work to, to prepare the soil. So anyway, keep that in your prayers and do let me know also if you have any, any thoughts about this or any specific techniques that, that you may have found to be effective in teaching young people. This age group is high school. I think it's all, all grades of high school. So high school youth. I've got a couple things that have kind of worked for me in the past, but I don't have a ton of experience with this age group. So if you do, please let me know. One thing I am thinking of, uh, something I got from a teacher of many years is pretty pretty basic but uh, I believe it's called think pair share so you you, uh, you know maybe have a lecture or reading or a video or something for a little while so you introduce some material then you have a discussion question but first you ask them to think about it individually so you pose the question and actually give them a little bit of time to think about it then you can pair them up either one-on-one -on -one or groups of four or something. I think our class is small enough we could do one-on-ones. And they talk about it with one another. One shares and the other shares. Then you come back to the whole group and you have them share out with the whole group what they discussed one-on-one. -on -one. That's something I'm thinking about. Um, so I might use that this Sunday, just see how it goes. But yeah, if you have any other techniques or tips, please do share them with me, I will appreciate hearing them. All right, let's shift gears. I want to talk just a little bit about rings of power. <laughs> some of you have asked for some more rings of power related uh, content and discussion, and we're up to episode seven now, I believe. Um, and boy, I have some thoughts. If I take one more step, it'll be the farthest away from home. I've ever been. Fool of a took. Throw yourself in next time and rid us of your stupidity. 
So up to episode seven now of Rings of Power. We are awaiting this week the eighth and final episode of the first season, which I hope will kind of tie up some loose ends and uh, uh, bring these first seven to a satisfying conclusion. I hope they do stick the landing, so to speak. Um, I'm sure that there will be many mysteries left unsolved in order to bring us all back again for the next season, whenever that airs. Um, so how is Rings of Power going? I have to say, I have kind of cooled a little bit on this show. Um, and, and I can pinpoint the moment. It was uh, towards the end, of, I think it was episode 5, towards the end of episode 5. So we, by the way, there's going to be spoilers here. So if you're not up to date on Rings of Power, you might want to skip ahead about 15 minutes. Just skip this segment, all right? Because this is not going to be spoiler-free. Okay. So I think it was episode five. We, uh, we, we witnessed the discovery of Mithril, this uh, extraordinary mineral, <laughs> or metal, I suppose I should say, that the dwarves have found deep in the earth. And uh, so Durin shares about it with his friend Elrond, and then Elrond returns back home, and his father, the High King Gil-galad, is interrogating him about Mithril, and, and, and he knows the dwarves have discovered something, or he suspects they have. But Elrond has made this promise to Durin that he will not divulge this information. And, you know, elves and dwarves, lots of mistrust there. Then Gilgalad, uh, frustrated by Elrond's intransigence, uh, shares with him a secret. Why is he so interested in Mithril? Why is this so necessary? He shows him uh, this great tree uh, in Lindon, their kingdom. There's this great tree with golden leaves. It evokes the memory, of course, of Laurelin, the golden tree that existed in Valinor before time began. Um, and perhaps it's a, it's, a, it's a daughter of Laurelin, I'm not sure. But there's this golden tree, but as they draw close to it, you can see that it's, it's rotting away. The leaves are turning black, it's diseased, it's dying. And Gilgalad says, what's happening to the tree is only a symptom of what's happening to the elves as a whole. They are fading. Their life force is fading away. And soon they will vanish into little more than specters, like wraiths upon Middle-earth. Their immortal nature will simply fade into almost nothingness, if not outright disappear. The one thing that, it seems, can reverse this is Mithril. Gilgalad says uh, he needs to know from Elrond if the dwarves have discovered this precious metal below the earth because he has learned that this and only this can reverse the corruption, which is uh, killing the great tree and also causing the elves to wither away and fade. Now... All right. I can see why this is, is it's happening, why this is instrumental in the plot for the Rings of Power. I can see why they're setting this up. Um, but for me, this was kind of a bridge too far. As I was watching this episode, I've been watching all these with a friend of mine, a classmate here at St. Pat's, and as we're watching this, he doesn't, he doesn't know Tolkien, really. He hasn't read the books, but he's, he's seen the movies. So he's often asking me, is this in the lore? Is that in the lore? 
And so as you're watching this scene, before he could even turn to me, I said, that's not what Mithril is. That's not in the lore. <laughs> uh, so for me, the, the one thing I thought like maybe could resolve this is if, if it's revealed that Sauron has been lying to Gilgalad. If, if, you know, if Sauron has kind of planted this lie in order to create division between the elves and the dwarves, that would be very in character for Sauron. So if he's just telling them, if you can get Mithril, you can reverse this corruption. When in fact, Sauron is the one who's causing the corruption of the great tree. And, uh, you know, so really he's behind it all. But he's using this to kind of divide the two races and then create envy and jealousy and strife and, and division and war. So I was holding out hope that might be the case. And, I, and there's just a little glimmer of hope it might still be. But in the very last episode, episode 7... We did see uh, Elrond has brought one of the diseased leaves from Lindon to Moria. He leaves it on the table, and Durin, uh, frustrated with his father's refusal to allow him to mine for Mithril to help his friend, he carelessly tosses a little chunk of Mithril across the table, and it lands by the leaf. And we see the leaf is healed. The corruption disappears, and it's restored to its former luster and glory. And so it seems actually, yeah, Mithril does have this capacity to heal whatever is ailing the tree and by extension whatever is ailing the elves. Now, um, so, so when I saw that moment, far from being a moment of, uh, <laughs> of hope, for me that was a moment of near despair. Because <laughs> I thought, well, then it, it seems that this really is what Mithril is capable of. And so it seems also to verify this whole story that the elves are fading away through some kind of mysterious spiritual plague or, or cancer, like the great tree, and Mithril alone is going to save them. Uh, we'll see how it all unfolds. I'm, I'm trying to withhold judgment, and, and I'm, I'm hoping that the writers have something very clever up their sleeve that's going to surprise me um, and make this all make sense. But uh, that's just not what Mithril is. And, then this, and this idea that the elves have some kind of a, of a disease about them, that they're under some kind of a spiritual plague that's causing them to fade away and disappear and become like wraiths. To me, that, that is, that's very foreign to Tolkien's uh, depiction of elves. Now, I've been able to look over um, the kinds of complaints that I've seen others have about the elves in Rings of Power, namely that they're very emotional and some are, and then they're kind of politicking and some are very brash and Galadriel is so warlike and, and uh, un seemingly undisciplined in certain ways. And so, yeah, that, that's a very different tonal shift from elves in Lord of the Rings, where they're portrayed as these kind of quasi-angelic beings so far above mortal humans. In Rings of Power, they just kind of seem like humans. <laughs> They're so uh, uh, factious and contentious and constantly uh, and, and self-serving and politicking and all of this. So, but I've been able to overlook that because in the Silmarillion, yeah, the, when the elves are young, they are a lot like human beings. Their tempers run hot. And they're at war with one another constantly. We saw a lot of that last year as we read through the Silmarillion together on this podcast. So for me, that's not an issue because in this time period, the elves are young. And uh, it makes sense. Uh, there's a, the, the maturity of the elves that we see in 
in the Lord of the Rings, when they are like these, the few elves who are left in Middle-earth, I should say, are kind of like these elder brothers to mankind, almost like angels in their patience and seeming, seeming transcendence of the age's problems. Well, that comes with age and experience. And the elves in Lord of the Rings always have this sadness about them because of all that they have seen and suffered. But the passing away of the elves is that they move into the uttermost west. And this is Tolkien's vision for the elves. The elves uh, who in the third age have, have all but disappeared and the last of them are passing away. It's not that they're fading and becoming like ghosts, but they're actually engaged in this journey, this pilgrimage west back to Valinor, back to the realms of the Valar. And that's the transition of the undying elves. To have them fade and become like these spectral wraiths that sort of haunt <laughs> Middle-earth or something like that, to me that is just totally foreign to Tolkien's uh, vision for them and for Middle-earth. This essential contrast between elves and men is that the elves are the undying ones. They are the athanatoi, <laughs> to use a, a Greek word, <laughs> they're the undying ones. Uh, and men, mortal men, are the ones who pass away briefly and are gone forever. The elves know not where. They die and they go to some other place. And so, I mean, they're not, in Rings of Power, they're not saying the elves are dying. But what's the difference? This fading away to almost nothing to become ghosts. Uh, I don't, I'm, I'm uneasy with it. So that's, that's one thing for me. This is, if this plays out the way that they are so far um, portraying it in the way that Gilgalad is speaking about it. For me, this will be a bridge too far. I'm sorry. But we'll see. I'm hoping to be surprised. Now, I will say in this last episode, there were a couple of moments that I thought were really well done. And of course, the, the set design on this show is still just absolutely f fantastic. The shots are so beautiful. Some of the cinematography is a little uneven. There are some, uh, some shots, you know, in the... Um, what's the word for this? Just the, 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 like the setup of the, of the, like the camera work um, is, is unintentionally very funny. <laughs> and it just doesn't really work. It takes you out of the action. So I found that to be a bit uneven, but the set design itself and just the, the beauty of this world is, is stunning. Every episode is visually stunning. The dialogue is pretty uneven. Some lines sound like they could have been written by Tolkien. Others are just so clunky and wooden that it's like unbelievable that this actually passed muster <laughs> and got recorded. So for me, the experience has, from the first episodes when I was pretty enthusiastic, it's, it has declined. It's gotten, uh, I'm cooling. I'm cooling on the show, but I still have hope. But the few moments I, I mentioned that I really enjoyed in this last episode, I, I like some of the slower, um, contemplative moments, especially, where there's a little dialogue between some of the characters on a more philosophical level. To me, that, that really is reminiscent of Tolkien. It's like the moments in the Fellowship of the Ring, for example, when they're traveling and they pause and they're, you know, um, like, for example, when uh, they're, they're camped out at Weathertop before the Nazgul attack, and Aragorn tells the hobbits the tale of Beren and Luthien. Something like that, these moments um, in between the action, when we get some lore or, uh, you know, a deeper explanation of this or that. Um, so, to me, those moments feel more Tolkienian. 
One in this episode was Galadriel with Theo telling him with uh, the, the voice of, of age and experience, something that it seems she also needs to tell herself, <laughs> which is that it wasn't his fault. He thinks it's his fault that, you know, half the village is dead. Uh, Mount Doom, Orothruin, has exploded in, in, the, in the fire and carnage. Uh, many of the villagers perished. Many of his, his uh, neighbors have died. And, of course, he was messing around with this, this dagger or this sword hilt that somehow is mysteriously linked to Sauron. So he blames himself. He tells Galadriel as much, and she tells him, it's not your fault. And she's explaining to him that uh, the wise know that the, the, the Valar, she doesn't call them by name, but it seems clear she's talking about the Valar, if not the one himself, um, the Valar look into the intentions of men's hearts. And uh, so by not only, not only by actions, not that actions are unimportant, but not only by actions are we judged, but also by the will. And so she is offering Theo a kind of absolution and reminding him he didn't intend for any of this to happen. And after all, he's a young boy. It seems he's about 13 maybe in, in this, uh, this season. So that was an interesting encounter, one I appreciated very much. At the same time, it's poignant because what Galadriel is telling Theo, she also needs to hear. She's spending her immortal life for centuries in pursuit of Sauron in a kind of a revenge for her brother who was killed opposing him. And is it possible that she thinks that was her fault and now has taken upon herself the burden of finishing what he could not? Um, time will tell. Time will tell. Another moment that I really appreciated in this episode was the farewell between Elrond and Durin, these two friends. Their friendship for me is the highlight of Rings of Power so far. All the scenes with them uh, sparkle. <laughs> uh, the dialogue is good, the relationship is believable and compelling in ways that so few of the relationships so far in Rings of Power really are. But Durin and Elrond are, are excellent. So there's this scene uh, where they're parting ways. And it's especially poignant because, for all appearances, the elves are going to fade into nothing without Mithril. And Durin's father has forbidden him to mine for Mithril to help the elves. So they're at an impasse. This might be their last farewell. Only Elrond says, we do not say farewell. And you can see Durin even has some tears in the corners of his eyes as Elrond says, we say, I forget what the word is, but there's a, an elvish word that they say, which means toward the good. Rather than farewell, we say toward the good. I thought that is actually, um, that, that scene would fit into something that Tolkien himself had written. I can imagine him writing a moment like that, toward the good, because what a deeply Christian mm, understanding toward the good said in place of farewell implies that as long as we continue to journey toward the same good, we shall meet again. We shall meet again precisely there in the sumum bonum, the uh, plenitude of all good, which is heaven and union with God. And so to me, that was a, 
beautiful moment just shining out of, of, of a surprising, <laughs> a surprise to be sure, but a welcome one, <laughs> a surprising flash of uh, Tolkien's own sort of Catholicity and Catholic imagination. And uh, another one that just occurs to me now, there's a, maybe this is a coincidence, but it seemed to me to be a scriptural illusion where, uh, I forget even where it comes up, but one character mentions terrible as an army with banners. And of course that comes straight out of the Song of Songs. And our Catholic liturgy attributes that to Our Lady, actually. It's a, a verse that's often used in the Divine Office um, on Marian feast days. Um, Acies ordinata, an army arrayed with banners. Uh, speaking about how <laughs> Our Lady appears as if she's a one-woman army arrayed against all the forces of hell. So uh, when I heard that, also my ears perked up. So, I mean, yeah, they're trying. There's, there's good things. There's things to like. Um, the quality, as I say, I, I see has gotten a little bit uneven. And I'm worried about this mithril plot line. But I hope that they will surprise us all <laughs> with some uh, unforeseen resolution, perhaps in this week's episode eight. Let's see what happens. So do let me know your own thoughts. I'd be curious to hear from any of you who are watching along, and uh, especially if uh, what scenes have stood out to you, either for good or for ill. Uh, what moments uh, do you remember from these last seven episodes, and uh, where do you see it all going next? Do let me know. You can write in or send in a voice message uh, through Anchor or inyourembrace.com slash contact. Now, to finish up this week's episode... I'm joined again by Daniel Murphy to talk about Carmelite things, especially prayer uh, and the Carmelite style of spirituality. So without further ado, let us go over to our Carmelite conversation. Whoever is a little one, let him come to me. I have no need to climb to the height of the great saints, but I just have to be myself, a little child. In these words of scripture, I found at last my little way to become a saint. Well, today we are pleased to welcome Mr. Daniel Murphy back to In Your Embrace podcast. Daniel, joining us from Ashland, Oregon. How are you today, my friend? Greetings, Deacon, on your name day. Uh, as it turns out, we're recording on the Memorial of St. Matthew. Yes. Great evangelist. And yes, doing very well. Thank you. I've got a little raspiness, sorry, in my throat today. So, oh, Sorry to hear that. Well, we won't uh, make you talk for too long today, Daniel. We're <laughs> here to talk about uh, Carmelite prayer, the Carmelite style and spirituality of prayer, which... Uh, as we know, is a spirituality of profound silence. So I thought maybe we could spend this half an hour just in silence, <laughs> listening for the voice of God. <laughs> nice. Yes. <laughs> no, no, no. My hope for today, Daniel, is that um, we could identify some of the distinctive elements of Carmelite prayer. You know, within the church, we're blessed with many, many different spiritualities, many different schools of prayer, styles of prayer. If you think of the great religious orders, they each kind of have their own tradition. 
the Dominicans, Franciscans, and there are many wonderful lay movements. There, there are many teachers, but amongst many teachers and schools uh, stand one in particular, the, the Carmelite School of Prayer. So, Daniel, what are just some of the the distinctive elements of Carmelite prayer as compared to all the rest? As you were saying that, Pekin, I was just thinking about um, the three sort of towering saints. There were others, of course, in Carmelite tradition, um, three doctors of the church, which means they're sure guides in the faith. St. John of the Cross, the great doctor of mystical theology, St. Teresa of Jesus, of Avila, the white sometimes called the doctor of the soul and saying Therese of Lisieux that St. John Paul II called the master of the science of love. So I just want to point out that we've got a remarkable tradition that stands behind what we're going to explore here. So the first thing, though in direct answer to your question, the first thing that strikes me as distinctive, kind of a hallmark of Carmelite spirituality is a huge emphasis on the journey of the soul toward its innermost chamber, its innermost sanctuary, where it most intimately encounters God, you know, the divine indwelling. And whether the image is more the ascent of Mount Carmel or it's entering through the castles to the most interior castle where the king is present, or if it's a father holding a, a child in his arms, like the mm. beautiful image of St. Therese of Lisieux, it seems to me that they all point to this most intimate connection, spousal, even spousal connection with God. Yeah, you beautifully illustrate there how these different images of the Carmelite masters point to one spiritual reality, whether it's going up the mountain or it's going deeper and deeper into the interior castle through the progressive layers of, of the different mansions. Or even St. Therese's lovely image of the child being held to the father's chest, heart to heart. It is the, this one spiritual reality of, of getting right to the center of things, getting right to the beating heart of the relationship of man with God, of each human person with the creator. And I think, as you rightly point out, this word indwelling this is a very characteristic term from Carmelite uh, spirituality and spiritual theology. Carmelites have this particular, and it's not to say that other spiritualities in the church don't also have an intuition of this or speak of it in different terms. But in Carmel, we speak of the presence of God as the indwelling God, the God who dwells, as St. John of the Cross says, at the soul's innermost center, the soul's finest point. And so, therefore, for Carmelites, and the tradition of John of the Cross, he says, you don't have to go and seek gods out there in the world. You don't have to go to Jerusalem or to Mount Calvary or Bethlehem in order to find him. Either, of course, physically, but not even with the imagination. We don't have to go seeking God because God is there present to us already as soon as we begin to turn inward. As soon as we take the first step, if you want, up the mountain or, or into the castle. God is already there, and he's seeking us first, right? Yeah, and I was just thinking, as you're sharing that, Deacon, is the, this beautiful spirituality, this approach to prayer, of course, isn't apart from the gospel or from the many beautiful mansions, if you will, within the church's spiritual tradition, but it highlights, it's like a flashlight of sorts 
that just puts a light on this specific area, kind of going right to the bullseye of the matter of personal transformation. And that's one of the ways I have experienced Carmelite prayer is this subtle, gradual, unmistakable method of spiritual transformation, which maybe has a little bit more of human initiative to some degree in the beginning, and as time and experience progress, becomes more and more, if you will, divine initiative. It's always divine initiative. It's all hashir grace, you know, but I think there is kind of a shift, a subtle shift that occurs in the course of the journey um, for more discursive kind of thought-based encounter, even with the sacred scripture, to a more of a quiet kind of a stillness and a silence in encountering God in the soul's quiet. There's that journey, but I think concomitant with that journey is this mysterious transformation into God. And I know that's kind of a bold statement. And I think, you know, a theologian would have to properly qualify it. I think, uh, say, John of the Cross called it, we become God by participation, mm-hmm. not by nature, of course. We're adopted children of God. But through the participation in this transforming journey, we we are divinized. So it's a journey. It's a surrender. Well, over time, maybe we take a little more initiative in the beginning, and then over time, we surrender more, and often that surrender comes through sort of minor or sometimes not so minor crises hmm. of life experience or whatever might be facing us that purifies us. But the journey is more and more toward becoming one with God and, in a sense, becoming God by participation. Yes. And St. John of the Cross has this very evocative image. I expect you've read this um, of a a piece of damp wood that mm-hmm. is thrown onto the fire. <laughs> so in this in this analogy, the soul is like the wood. The fire, if you want, is the love of God. Um, you might say the Holy Spirit. But the soul that enters into prayer is plunged into the fire that is the living presence of God. The soul, when it enters the fire, is damp with the many cares and, and burdens of the world. And little by little, the wood is first dried out and the water is all evaporating. And you hear all kinds of crackling and there's steam and all this stuff being burned away. That's the beginning stages of prayer. And then gradually, as the whole log catches fire, there comes a time when the fire and the log are now indistinguishable. It's become completely consumed in this I think is what is what you were referring to earlier, Daniel, as this journey of transformation leading to union. And we want to be careful as we talk about this because it, it's easy for us, um, I think especially in the modern day, we're not accustomed to talking about prayer in this kind of a way. We tend to think of prayer more as, at best, a conversation. And at worst, maybe we're just kind of sending up little balloons to heaven and we're not really getting anything in response, but you know, we're just sending our petitions up and hoping someone's there to check the mail. But uh, for the Carmelite doctors, prayer 
is, is even more than conversation. Prayer is ultimately a spousal relationship between the soul and God. That's what we're called into. And it, so it's like some, some of the masters say that marriage is the least inadequate. <laughs> and not to say it's really sufficient, but it's the least inadequate analogy we have to talk about the relationship of the soul with God. And what happens in marriage? Well, in part, as, the, as our Lord says, the two become one. And that's what we're aiming at. And that's what the Lord is aiming at and desiring in our life of prayer, that the two shall become one. Jesus in John 17 prays, Father, that they may be one as we are one. You in me and I in you, so may they be one in us. And that high priestly prayer of Jesus remains the desire of God for each one of us, active, present, here and now. When we go to prayer, that's what God is desiring, that we may be one. Oh, man. Well, yes. And I was just thinking as you were sharing that, what a sign of contradiction in a way, this approach to prayer and the journey toward the soul's union with God is to our current culture. Mm. Because the culture we live in, at least my experience of it, is, um, of course, these are broad strokes. It's uh, highly success-oriented, mm. oriented toward appearance, toward pleasure. Again, none of those things is intrinsically wrong, but the emphasis is so external and so surface-based, whereas Carmelite spirituality is this deeper union this process of union. And I was just thinking to extrapolate just a minute on your metaphor, the, the, one of the least inadequate metaphors of marriage. Um, my wife and I have been married for 40 years. And so I can say uh, clearly the, the love is as vibrant as it was in the beginning. And it's also far subtler and more gentle and tender and quieter. Deborah mm. and I can just sit without having to say a word to each other, you know, for mm. you know, long stretches. We can also complete each other's sentences. We can start <laughs> something, she can finish it. I mean, we have such a, a communion of, well, 40 years of a journey together. So I do think that there's something about the marriage metaphor that that's really very, very powerful. And of course, in our culture, again, long-term marriages are countercultural because... It's about self. It's about if someone doesn't fulfill me, quote unquote, then I'm going to exit stage left. So mm -hmm. I do think Carmelite spirituality is a beautiful and a powerful sign of contradiction. It's the deep dive approach to life, not staying on the surfaces, but delving into the deep. Mm. The deep dive. I love that. Yeah, going, going to the deep, going right to the heart. Or if you want to take John of the Cross's language, daring to make the arduous ascent to the mountaintop, come what may. In either case, we're taking a risk. Um, and it, it's much the same in marriage, isn't it? You're taking a risk by committing yourself to another person, come what may. Yeah. Yeah. What strikes me too, as you were sharing, thank you so much for mentioning uh, after 41 years of marriage, how the relationship has changed. You know, there's a priest here at my seminary. He has his his rules for life. He calls them Father Sam's Laws. And the very first of them is, he says, T3, it's things take time. 
very first right. rule. <laughs> and it strikes me that that, that uh, little bit of, of wisdom from Father Sam Weber could be adequately applied as well to Carmelite spirituality. The Carmelites well understand that things take time. The relationship of prayer with God, there are, there are no shortcuts. And that also is quite a countercultural. There is simply no quick fix. There's no do these three things and you'll reach the summits of the interior life in 12 weeks or less. You know, there's no mail order course or whatever. There's no master class. You know, it's just, it's just a matter of fidelity to prayer, showing up, being wholeheartedly surrendered to God, being open, vulnerable, suffering the inrushing presence of God, which exposes the parts of the heart that we most want to hide and simply allowing God to have his way. And over time, the, the wet log dries up and the fire begins to catch even within the deepest parts of the wood. And slowly, slowly, that union is affected. It's quite humbling, isn't it? it not only is it an inspiration to patience, it's also a reminder that God is God and we are not. We can't unite ourselves to God, you know. And this, this is a corrective that Carmelite spirituality offers I think to pagan and Gnostic spiritualities of all description in the ancient world, it was very common, you know, people would subscribe to these Gnostic religions and mystery cults, which promised that if you only attained this secret knowledge, that only I can teach you. If you learn the seven secret passwords so that you can ascend between all the planets to get to the highest heavens, you know, whatever it is, if you follow my system, if you learn my techniques, well, then you can be reunited to God. Then your heart will be satisfied. But it all depends on you having the right knowledge and you doing it right. And Carmelite spirituality is completely different. John of the Cross, remember, says it's the way of the nada. It's the way of nothing. You want to know the secret way? The secret is be nothing. If you want to arrive at the all, go by the way by which you have nada. That's a great comparison between Carmelite spirituality and the deep things take time approach and the kind of flash in the pan passing types of spirituality in new ageism and so forth. Yeah. Um, and I was there. I've, I've been there. I've done that. I've got the t-shirt as my wife <laughs> Me says. Me too. Now, right? <laughs> so I understand the attraction for the quicker fix for the enlightenment. I think that I detected three things in your reflection, Deacon, about the more sure path of uh, things take time. One is a commitment. And I was thinking, for me personally, it's committing to a time and a place for prayer. Not that everybody mm -hmm. can do this the same way. Of course, this is not a one size fits all. But for me, in the time of the morning, giving the first fruits to God and just setting aside time for prayer, showing up being there. I think the second thing you mentioned, fidelity, I think is so critical. Again, it is against the grain of our culture to remain true to something when it's not mm. apparently bearing the fruit you want, but staying steadfast and firm in faith. And the third is surrender. And this is such a, a tough thing. I mean, it's a really hard thing to surrender our autonomy, our sense of personal, quote, power, to trust that God is there and he holds us and he wants us to become our truest, best selves. 
that surrender is really an act of great faith. So I was just thinking, in my mind, how there's no way around the long-term approaches to commit to prayer, to be faithful to prayer, and then to surrender to God's action. Yes. Yeah, Daniel, it's well said. The only thing I can think to add is St. Teresa of Avila has this lovely quote that we need to have a very determined determination to reach the goal. Come what may, happen what may, even if we should die in the attempt. That was her <laughs> counsel to her sisters one day. And uh, it's so striking sometimes to read St. Teresa. You know, she's a cloistered nun and she's like a general leading an army into battle. <laughs> Una determinada determinación. We need to have that absolutely single-hearted focus on the goal. And what is the goal? The goal, as you said earlier, is this divine union. The goal is the life of friendship with God that just continues to grow and grow until everything, everything is consumed in that fire of love. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in our culture, again, kind of toggling between Carmelite prayer and its ethos and the ethos of our culture, the, our culture has a big emphasis on goal attainment. Mm -hmm. goal grit you know mm -hmm. having grit yeah. staying the course with that goal and so you could say that's really a, a fine and a proper human virtue you know to yes. aspire to something and then to grittily if you will pursue it how much more ultimately effective and fruitful it would be to set the goal of divine union and I, I'm thinking back as I've been reflecting on Carmelite prayer and how it's affected me over the years, because I first encountered St. John of the Cross, by the way, just on the side, through a lovely priest who was substituting at a parish. And he came over to visit Deborah and me, and he brought a copy of the collected works of St. John of the Cross. Hmm. And Deborah and I were neophytes. We were like, you know, really new in the faith. I was a revert, and Deborah was a convert. So we were pretty young and naive in the faith. And it was pretty remarkable that he brought us Jonathan Cross as a <laughs> gift and said, and really encouraged us, said, you know, you should read this. Well, of course, you could imagine uh, it was a, somewhat obtuse. It was a little bit hard for us to get full access to. But I think what it did was it whetted our appetite mm, for yes. this depth spirituality, the spirituality that goes into the deep, put out into the deep, as Jesus said in Luke. And mm. so I think even though we couldn't fully fathom what it all meant, at the time it became a motif. It became a calling, in a sense, within our call to marriage. So both Deborah and I have been very enamored of Carmelite saints and have studied Carmelite prayer and, and practiced it. So now I think over all these years, it has borne its fruit. It really bears yeah. out of uh, Father, would you say Sam? Father yeah. Sam's little triple T, things take <laughs> run. But I, I just want to underscore one thing there, Deacon Matthew, which is I think the grit, um, the fire, it's not really grit at this point. I think it's fire. You get ignited mm -hmm. by the mm -hmm. possibility of something. I remember encountering St. John and not really understanding, as I say, what he what he was sharing entirely, but getting the sense of complete being on fire and being one with God and so forth, that captivated me, even when I didn't fully grasp it. And now, some whatever, 40 years later, I think, by the grace of God, 
that has been integrated subtly into my spiritual life and into the marriage, our marriage, to bring my marriage. So what we set as a goal, that determined determination, it has to start with something. And I think, you know, just turning to God and saying, I want this. I want this complete union. I want this transformation. I don't understand it. I don't fully grasp it, but it's something my heart hungers and thirsts for is a huge part of the impetus to move toward that goal. That's so true, Daniel. You know, it has to start with the desire. A, a determined determination has to spring from a deep longing of the heart. I, I'd be curious to know which work of John of the Cross this priest had you read first. Uh, my formation director, who first introduced me to Carmelite spirituality, said he always has people start with the living flame of love. This short Same. little poem John of the Cross wrote. Is that what you read? Precisely. Yes. Wonderful. Yeah. Yes. Because he said, if you start with the ascent of Mount Carmel, people are going to get scared and run away. <laughs> you start yes. with John of the Cross's most yeah. most mature, most luminous work, precisely to ignite that fire yeah. of, of desire. Yeah. 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 And for people who maybe, I don't know if you would agree with this, Deacon, people who maybe haven't encountered St. John of the Cross directly, the mm -hmm. living flame of love might be a good place to start because it is, it's kind of like Stephen Covey, the, the great organizational psychologist of the 20th century said, always start with the end in mind. Yeah. And it's in a way, the living flame of love is sort of like the mature, consummated spiritual union. And by glimpsing that, I think the flame, the inner flame can get ignited. I think that brings us to one last point, at least this is the last one that I would like to make today, which is Carmelite spirituality is profoundly affective and also cool. integrative of the whole person. And what I mean by that is it's not just intellectual. This is not just taking place at the level of the mind. Um, when we talk about union with God, we mean the whole person united to God. And so in Carmelite prayer, you know, there's a great emphasis on the desires. And as we progress in prayer, one of the most beautiful fruits, I think, is our desires start to change. We begin to desire what God desires because our heart is more closely united to the heart of God through the humanity of, of Jesus Christ. And so we're becoming more and more in the image of Jesus, united to the Holy Trinity, and we begin to desire what is truly good and right and just. Um, not perfectly in this life, unless except maybe for some saints, you know, we get all the way there, but we start to see the progress and we start to see the fruits. We begin to feel more at peace and greater joy and delight in spiritual things and doing works of charity. We're more impelled to do good for our neighbors and our loved ones. Um, we find it easier to, you know, rise above petty hurts and, and resentments, to forgive quickly, to move out of ourselves, to, you know, even to love our enemies. Um, all the things that Jesus commands us to do that seem so onerous and impossible in the Gospels, when you're living a life of deep prayer, it really becomes an easy yoke and a light burden. At times, it's still difficult for our humanity, but we begin to experience the truth of what Jesus said, that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Because if we're united to him in prayer, well, we're, we're, we're breathing as one. Our hearts are beating as one. Um, and so for me, the great insight of Carmelite prayer is when the, the desires of our heart are united with the desires of God's heart, 
then the whole Christian life starts to make sense. And I think without prayer, it's impossible. But with prayer, living the Christian life becomes immensely possible and delightful. Oh man, you know, I was just thinking one other little add-on to what you were saying, Deacon. And that's a fabulous point, which is the integration of the human personality that occurs through sustained prayer. Um, mm. One of the readings, the passage today from Ephesians 4 has to do with coming to full stature, coming to full human maturity. St. John Paul II uh, loved this. And one of the things that he articulated that hit me really forcibly at the time was the prospect of becoming a truly mature Christian personality. Mm. So we remain, of course, in our humanness. God, of course, wouldn't have it any other way, but we become like the log, the damp log that has been purified and now is one with fire. We also become, in a sense, divinized, this mature Christian personality. Yes. Yeah, that's... Um, it is something that I think happens in my own experience pretty much imperceptibly without yeah. really noticing it. Yes. Again, that, you know, um, things take time. Over time, this imperceptible change occurs. And as you pointed out, Deacon, the, the desires that might be a little bit self-serving or whatever <laughs> in the beginning, that's just human. That's who we are. We're the subject of our yeah. own experience. So that's what's most immediate to us. Over time, they become progressively more god-centered and of course then in turn other-centered so we become you know authentically mature christian personalities so that's a nice prospect to hold on to yes exactly we can hold that in mind as as part of the goal part of the uh the glory of the union with god yes the fullness of maturity in christ well daniel we could keep on talking for hours but i think we have to wrap it up here for today I'll look forward to having you back again next week, and we can talk a little bit more about some practicalities of prayer in the Carmelite tradition. So I'm excited to continue the conversation with you uh, next week, God willing. God willing. Thank you, Deacon. Thank you, Daniel. Until then, my friend and all of you listening to this podcast, the Lord be with you. And with your spirit. And may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God.